Welcome to the Fairview Church Podcast. At Fairview Church, we are dedicated to reaching our neighbors with the true freedom found in full surrender to Christ. To find out more about our church, including service times, location, and current sermon series, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org. Hey, uh, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Pastor Devin and the rest of the worship leaders here leading us in worship. If you have your Bibles, open up to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to give you an update on our family ministry project. For those that are new, uh, my name is John Spolino. I am the family pastor here. And we have been uh, fundraising for just under a year for our kids space, uh, just to keep get you guys updated. Well, last February, uh, not last February, like a month ago, so I guess it would be last February, uh, Beck Jones and I came in front of you all to kind of give you an update on our uh, give you an update on our project, where we were at fundraising-wise. And we told you that, hey, we're trying to raise $41,000 to kind of finish out stage one of our, uh, of, our, of our fundraiser or of our renovation. And in the month of February, guys, you guys in total gave $56,000. Can we just praise the Lord in that? So here's what this means for us. It means that not only can we finish stage or phase one, but it means we can do phase two of our renovation. And we still have some opportunities like our merch store in April and our yard sale in May to earn a little bit more so that we can maybe push towards phase three. Uh, but I am just incredibly grateful um, and humbled by your generosity as a church and your care for families. Um, this is going to be so beneficial, not only to our church family, but for, as we mentioned in February, missionally, as we bring in people who would never step into church, but they might step into our indoor place playground and that kind of stuff. So I'm just so grateful for you. Listen, if you participated in the sponsoring a book name fundraiser in February, and you have not filled out the link that was sent two weeks ago, you need to send that in today. If for some reason you know that you gave, but didn't get a link, you need to email me today, jspolino at myfairview.org so that I can get you set up. All right. Cause we're going to be putting that, uh, order in this Wednesday, uh, to our company so that they can get those titles kind of in their system. So please do that. All right. Well, hey, we are in a series called Reframing Jesus. And we started this last week. We're going through the book of John. And the writer of John is giving us these portraits of Jesus, who Jesus is. And Pastor Brandt last week uh, started this series talking about how uh, there's a portrait of light that, that the writer John is giving these uh, glimpses and these painting these portraits of Jesus. And two of those that we talked about last week was that he's painting them as the word. So the logos, we see that in John chapter one, in the beginning was the word that's supposed to bring us back to Genesis chapter one. There's this kind of new creation type of motif and theme that's happening there. And then we also talked how that's connected to that Jesus is the light. And so the writer, John, gives us indication of the light and how that's connected to life. When you look throughout scripture, light and life are always connected and death and darkness are connected and how the only way we can have true life is through Jesus, the true light. And John is continuing to paint this portrait of John. He's bearing witness to this life. And what we're going to look at this morning is that a life that is found in Jesus 
is brought about by two distinct realities that we're going to look at this morning. The first is that Jesus is a better way in comparison to the Old Testament and how Jesus is the better lamb compared to the lambs that we have in the Old Testament as well. For the sake of y'all, because this is a rather lengthy text, I'm going to read the first portion of it, and then I'm going to ask you to stand towards the end of it um, in honor of his word, but I didn't want you standing up for like five minutes. So uh, you're welcome. All right. Verse 15, John chapter 1. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, or the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. Now, if you would stand with me and read this out loud together in honor of God's word, starting in verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who is higher rank than I. For he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you are the word. Lord, help us now be transformed by you by your spirit, and by your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may have a seat. Have you ever asked somebody a question and then regretted it because you were hoping for a simple answer and they gave you way more information that you wanted to know? Has that ever happened? Like, listen, if you were to ask, like there's a big difference between Amber and myself. You ask Amber a question, she's giving you a yes, a no, or it's like a one set and tops. Like that's what she'll do. You ask me a question, 
it's a gamble, folks. You may be there for a minute, and some of you are shaking your heads. You know, like you never know what kind of conversation you're getting into with me, right? I think that's what's happening here, okay? Um, the Jews have sent these priests and these Levites to find out who John the Baptist is. He's a crazy character. He's wearing weird clothes. He's eating bugs and honey. He's telling people, hey, listen, repent, be baptized in water. The Messiah is coming. And they're like, what are you doing? Who gave you this authority? Who are you? And John the Baptist is going to take that simple question, who are you? He's going to deflect it from himself And he's about to give them a beautiful truth about who Jesus is. And as I mentioned before, we read our passage that John is, the writer, is trying to reveal this portrait of Jesus. He's trying to show us and allow us to know who Jesus is. And the only way that we can have life in our life is to be connected to the true life, the true light. And that is by recognizing that Jesus is the better way and the better lamb. What we'll see from our text is that there's going to be this link, just as in Genesis chapter 1 and John chapter 1, being this kind of creation type of motif, we're going to see some comparisons and some or some parallels, at least, or some drawbacks to the Exodus story with some characters. And this is going to really help us understand when we get to uh, one of the, the center points of his argument, what the Lamb of God actually means. And so we're going to look at that in a moment. But I want you to prepare yourself thinking through these, these uh, parallels that are here. John starts to tell us about how Jesus is the better way. In verse 15, he starts to tell us that John the Baptist was testifying and crying out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me is a higher rank than I because he existed before me. Now, we have a really weird switch to verses 16 through 18 because John the writer is saying, hey, here's what John's testimony is. And then he starts giving his own commentary. And I really believe it's because just kind of like when you start to talk to somebody and then you realize, wait, I got to add some pretext to this conversation. I think that's what's happening here. John the Baptist starts saying, hey, here's John's testimony. Oh, wait, I really need to cover this before I get into John's testimony. And so he makes a little abrupt switch to add in a little bit of understanding. And he tells us three things that he is trying to show us that Jesus is the better way than what it was before. Because he's going to connect this all back to Jesus being the Lamb of God. So the first thing that we see, the reason why Jesus is the better way than before, is in verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace. We see here that he describes Jesus as the fullness. We have received the, his fullness We think of St. Paul in Colossians when it says that it pleased the Father that his fullness would dwell in God. We also think of Colossians as well when it says, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The idea here is that in Jesus we have completeness, we have the fullness. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that God revealed in many portions and many ways. These prophets, they had these little snippets of who Jesus was going to be, right? They had a little piece of like a puzzle. 
But then Jesus comes, and not only is he the fullest revelation of who God is, when you see God, you'll see the Father, which we'll get to, but he is also the very fullness, the completeness that completes the Old Testament. We think of Matthew, for example, when he says, I did not come to get rid of the law, but to complete it. He has come to show us that the law is insufficient, which brings us to verse 17. He says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. He is telling us that there's this law in the Old Testament. We have this Moses figure, the Exodus figure, right? It's the center point of that story. And he gave you this law, and that law is not complete. Jesus comes and he completes that law with grace and with truth. As we think about this law and this grace and truth comparison here, Galatians 3.24 tells us that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by him. The law here was helpful. It shows us just how beautiful and glorious and how holy God is. It shows us just how deficient we are to match up to that law. It shows us our sin. It shows us our captivity to sin and the power of Satan. So the law is helpful. But it tells us here that the law leads us so that we may be led to Christ so that we can be justified by faith. Consider Hebrews 10 for a moment. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would, not, would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshipers, having been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins? But in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now jump to verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Jesus came with grace and truth. He is the one that completes this law. What the Old Testament, the law, could not do, Jesus does. Why? Well, his grace is not only this grace upon grace, this continual grace that he gives us because he is full of grace and mercy and love. When we fail, he gives us that grace upon grace. When we succeed, he's giving us grace upon grace, right? He is full. He's a fullness of God. He has that grace to give It's not only because it's perfect and complete, but it's because Jesus is actually divine. He reveals the Father. Verse 17 tells us that he reveals this. That if you've seen the Father, you have seen me. And he says, no one has ever seen the Father. But the Son of God, he explains him. And so John himself will Indicate, for example, in John 10, I and the Father are one. John 14, he who has seen me has seen the Father. 
We think about how Jesus is not only God who dwelt among us, but how 1 Timothy tells us that God was manifested in the flesh. Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus is not only the brightness of God's glory, but he is the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is divine. And so Jesus is the better way, the way our lives can be transformed by Jesus because he's better. He is better than what was offered before. He's complete. He's continually giving us grace and mercy and love. And he is divine. Where the sacrifices in the Old Testament were insufficient to save somebody's sins perfectly, Jesus is not. You can see why John wants to give this commentary right before he jumps into, behold, the Lamb of God. He's giving them this understanding to help them work through everything that he's about to talk to, talk about. So Jesus is the way. One quick thing, J.C. Ryle writes this about Jesus being the grace and truth. Grace came by him, and when he made fully known God's gracious plan of salvation, by faith in his own blood, and opened the fountain of mercy to all the world, truth came by him when he fulfilled in his own person the types of the Old Testament and revealed himself as the true sacrifice, the true mercy seat, and the true priest. What the writer John is showing us is that the salvation that happens with Jesus is carried through Jesus, but it's not just about him. What we actually see in this text for a moment is we see God the Father being mentioned. We see Jesus being mentioned. At the very end, we see the Holy Spirit being mentioned. The idea here that John is trying to orient our mind around is that the old way was helpful. But it's now complete because salvation, the plan of salvation is initiated by the Father. It's carried out in the Son. And it's completed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus does in his baptism. It tells us that at the very end of our text. So it's a better way. But then the writer jumps back into John's testimony to tell us that he is a better lamb. Since we're short on time, I'm going to paraphrase the first portion. They send these people to Jesus to ask this question, who are you? It's a simple question, right? Who are you? Well, if you've ever seen The Lion King, you know it's not a simple question, right? Remember that scene with Simba, who are you? You know, anyways, it's not a simple question. Mufasa, Mufasa, Mufasa. Anyways, right? It's not a simple question. But John takes that question and he goes deeper. And he tells us, A, one, he's not the Messiah. They ask him, are you the Christ, the one we've been waiting for, the deliverer? He says, no. In fact, it tells us that not only did he confess, he did not deny, he confessed. That means he was emphatically trying to show them that he was not the Messiah. Well, are you Elijah, the prophet who was brought up to heaven in the chariot of fire that never really died? Are you Elijah? He says, no. Are you the prophet, i.e. Moses? Are you that prophet? Are you Moses, the great one? He says, no. And then he says this, I am just a voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. 
He's referencing Isaiah 40, chapter 3, and the idea here is like someone, a forerunner, going before a king. They'd be going to these remote areas, and they'd be shouting, Hey, guess what? The king's coming. Get ready. The king's about to be here. They pave the path straight, saying, Hey, get ready. The best analogy I can come up with, and it does fall short because Jesus and John the Baptist are two different people, but think of this as a siren and a truck are two different things, okay? But imagine you're driving and you hear a siren. Have you ever heard a siren but didn't see the truck and you're freaking out, right? Because you're looking everywhere all around. You're trying to figure out where this is coming from. That's the idea. You hear before you actually see. And John the Baptist is coming to the scene to proclaim that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to come. And what we see from our text is that the Father has given him a one very specific indication on who this Messiah is. It's towards the end of our text. It tells us that he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. So there's this aspect that the Holy, the one where the one where the Holy Spirit, right, dwells upon. That is the Messiah. So he's waiting for that. That is why he says things like, I didn't know him until this happened. Because he didn't know about it yet, because the Father had not revealed that to him. But we know that was what he was waiting for. And so these disciples or these, these priests, they come to John. They said, who are you? They said, well, then why are you baptizing? And he says, well, I'm baptizing in water. He said, I'm just baptizing in water. Among you stands one who is so worthy that I can't even tie the strap of his sandal. The idea here is that as they're asking John the Baptist these things, Jesus was in their presence. There's one among you who is so far greater. Don't waste your time with me. Look at Jesus. Look at the Messiah. And what we see is the next day their answer, or at least the the answer to the question that they weren't asking is about to be answered on, well, who are you? Well, I'm not the Messiah. But they're really asking, who's the Messiah? Who, Who is this Christ? Is about to be revealed. The next day, John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we finally get to this moment, right? He's been asking these questions, right? They're asking John the Baptist. I'm not him. There's someone who's so much more worthy than me. He's higher than me. He comes before me. And then he sees Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Well, what would they be thinking about? He's already referenced all these Old Testament figures, right? He's already thought about these Old Testament ideas. So what type of ideas would they be thinking about when it comes to the Lamb of God? Well, maybe there are some there who are thinking about the story of Abraham and Isaac. Y'all remember that? Abraham is told by God to go and sacrifice his son, Isaac. And his son is like, hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Right? It's going to get real awkward in a couple of verses. Okay? Right? He's like, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. And in that story, God provides a lamb as a substitute for Isaac. Well, we know in our story that 
Jesus becomes that substitute for us. Jesus becomes that scapegoat, right? The substitution for us on the cross. Some may have thought about the lambs and the animals that were slaughtered pretty much all the time in the Old Testament for peace offerings and atonement and these other avenues of forgiveness. Maybe they thought about Isaiah 53, the lamb that Isaiah prophesied would be slaughtered for the iniquity of the world, for the sin of the world. I think all those are true, but I think in more of a sense, they probably would have thought about this picture, and that is Jesus as the Paschal lamb, the Passover lamb. He's mentioned Moses. He's mentioned the prophet. He's bringing us kind of back to this uh, idea of the Exodus. And remember, in this story, the Israelites are held captive by the Egyptians. And they won't, the Pharaoh won't let them go. So God sends these plagues. And the last plague, he tells the Israelites, if you trust me, if you put your faith in me, you need to go kill a lamb, take its blood, and put it on your doorpost, and the judgment of God would pass over you. What we see in the Passover story is deliverance not only from the Egyptians and the slavery, but also deliverance from God's judgment. And I think the same is true. I think what John the Baptist is doing, he's saying, listen, here's the Lamb of God. And we know, given that we're 2,000 some years removed, that that's exactly what Jesus did. When he died on the cross as our lamb that was slain, he did die as a substitute like in the Isaac story. We know that there's connections to the sacrificial system like what was going on in the Old Testament, obviously. We know that he is the lamb that is referred to in Isaiah 53. But we know that on the cross, Jesus did something for us that is absolutely beautiful and horrendous at the same time. Because in his gruesome death, not only physically, but spiritually on that cross, when the Father turned away, Jesus not only delivered us from a captivity that we are in from sin, but he also rescued us from the, from, from the judgment of God as well because of our sin. N.T. Wright says it like this. By the end of the story... John, the gospel writer, not the Baptist, so he's talking about the full book of John here, has made the meaning clear that the death of Jesus takes place in the gospel on the afternoon when the Passover lambs were being killed in the temple. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. John, like many New Testament writers, but in his own particular way, wants us to understand the events concerning Jesus as a new and better Exodus story. Just as God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, so God was now bringing a new people out of an even older and darker slavery. Only when the lamb has been killed for the world's sin can the spirit of the living God be poured out in his people. Only when the temple has been made clean and ready, the temple of human hearts, polluted by sin and rebellion, can the presence of God come and live there. And what I love about this is that when we look at this text, we would expect the Lamb of God to be the crescendo or the highest point of this text. And while it is important, it actually gets bigger here. Because the last two verses in John are so revealing. 
He tells us that he baptizes in water, but, but Jesus, well, he baptizes in the Holy Spirit. Joel chapter 2 tells us that when the day of the Lord comes, when the Messiah is here, God will pour out his spirit amongst his people. And it's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles. It's for everybody that God will pour out his spirit. The indwelling of the spirit. That means that God not only dwells, dwells in the temple like he did in the Old Testament, but now God is going to dwell in the temple of our heart. And then he says, at this height of this whole entire discourse, he, excuse me, he says in verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who is going to be slain for our sin. To free us from captivity. So John says, you want a life that has life? Because he is the word. He's the creator. He is the light. And from him comes life. But the only way to do that is to trust that Jesus is the better way. And he is the better lamb, the better sacrifice. It's the only way. So what is our response to this? Well, first off, it's worship. This is the Jesus that we worship, our Savior. And then the second thing, as we've been talking about, is this, that we don't want to fashion our own story around Jesus, or we don't want to fashion Jesus, our story around Jesus. We want Jesus' story to be fashioned around us, right? Or opposite, I'm getting that mixed up. I'm too, too excited, folks, right? We want... <laughs> To make sure that we are conforming to Jesus' story and that he's not conforming to ours. That's the point, okay? That's the point. He is the king. We worship him. So let's finish out with this. I want to read Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read it out loud. This is about the Lamb of God. I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back sealed with the seven seals and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the book and break its seals and no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has come so to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom to priests our God and they will reign on earth then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne 
and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them were myriads and myriads or thousands upon thousands, right? Saying with a loud voice, worthy is a lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created, created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is our lamb of God. This is Jesus, the Messiah who came to take our place on that cross to deliver us not only from the sin, the captivity of sin, but also to deliver us and to cleanse us from our sin so that we can have a relationship with God. That should draw us into worship. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for being our lamb. Thank you that you are the light. You are the logos, the word. Thank you for being the better way, for being the better lamb. Help us to conform our life around you. You define our life, Jesus. It's not the other way around. So help us to do that in our lives this morning. And help us to worship the lamb who was slain. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Fairview Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit us online at www.myfairview.org.